Uh, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met yet. Excited to have you with us here this morning. Uh, we are in week two of our series, The Cruciform Life. We're journeying through the book of 2 Corinthians, though we can't talk about everything. Um, we're going to cover some ground this morning, but I, I'm going to hone in, and, and I think you'll understand why. There's a lot of things we could talk about. Paul goes on all these tangents, and you could almost do a sermon on each tangent, but then we'd be in 2 Corinthians forever, and we aren't going to do that. Uh, But we're going to hone in on relationships, complicated conversations. You might call them arguments or fights. And I thought I'd start by reading one of our small groups uh, used this book for their conversation this year, Liturgy of the Ordinary by Tish Harrison Warren. She's a thoughtful lady. And chapter six is entitled Fighting with My Husband. And this is how she begins. It's, It's thoughtful. Pay attention. Jonathan stopped by at midday to pick something up at the house, and we had a fight. I would call it an argument, but that sounds too reasonable, like we were coolly debating opposing sides of an issue. Logical, rational, collected, the stuff to make marriage therapists proud. This was hardly that. Because most often, and this is so true, most often what we're arguing about, in this case, a decision about our daughter's schooling, isn't really what we're arguing about. What we are actually arguing about is our fears and our anxieties and our identities and our hopes. We were really arguing about how we love our daughter and feel a chasm, a terrifying chasm between our responsibility for her and our ability to bear it well. We were grieving the reality of our limitedness and our inability to rescue our daughter from suffering in our broken world and even in our broken family. And we were arguing about the sharpness in our voices and who interrupts whom and how often and about a passing comment he made yesterday and a look I gave him this morning. (laughs) These are the patterns in family life that make it hard to be patient. And gentle and kind, we talk about the beauty of the cruciform way, the Jesus way. I'm not mad that you threw your shirt on the floor today. I'm mad about the last 300 times you've thrown your shirt on the floor. Or more painfully, it's not just that I'm mad about your criticism today. It's how a pattern of criticism, comment by passing comment, bumps up against my own patterns of sin and woundedness and self-defensiveness. Today's conflict is not a marital crisis. There was no profound betrayal or lie or scandal. It is a burr-under-the-saddle conflict over the kind of habitual resentment that if we let it, will build. We start by talking about something casual, and then I fret aloud, and he dismisses it because I've fretted aloud so often, it's a pattern. And then I say something sarcastic, and it escalates from there until one or both of us yells, And one or both of us leaves the room. And then she ends it with these sentences. Thankfully, we have a small house. We can't get too far away from each other. So we play chicken. I sigh loudly and he gets on the computer. And we wait to see who will lay down their sword first. It takes a lot of bravery to lay down a sword. More bravery than either of us have at the moment. So we sit in stony silence. You want me to keep reading, don't you? You can (laughs) buy the book. Um, 
But I, I liked it, and I could hear you were resonating with her language. She's a thoughtful, articulate author. Um, but that last phrase, if you were with us in our last series, we were talking about this biblical theme in the Bible uh, that kind of flows through the city of Babylon, kind of starts in Genesis, runs through Revelation. And we were trying to name some of the cultural pieces of life in Babylon. And we use this phrase a lot now at Crossview, living in modern day Babylon. And we even had a sermon where we looked at what Jesus had to say about laying down your sword. That's why I was even drawn to this little passage this morning I want you to be thinking about the tools that you've been equipped with in modern-day Babylon. I want you to be thinking about the tools and the history and the training you bring to complicated conversations, to difficult conversations, maybe scary. Uh, One of my favorite books on relationships is a book called Crucial Conversations. (laughs) These conversations, we all have them, where opinions vary, the stakes are high, And emotions are really strong. And you can either avoid these conversations, you can face them and handle them poorly, or I actually think you can face them and handle them as we've been talking about in this series beautifully, in the way of Jesus. So as we look at what Paul is going to do, just a few things along the way as we read through the beginning of this letter this morning, I'm going to try to draw out a few things that Paul does, not a formula, We don't do formulas here. There is no one size fits all. Oh, you just do these four steps and you will love everyone. That's not how it works. You and I adopt a posture of Jesus, a way of Jesus, and it involves wisdom and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, giving us wisdom beyond ourselves that we learn from Jesus this rhythm of love, but it often looks different in different relationships. So it's not a formula. (laughs) But there's some postures, some pieces about the way of Jesus, this cruciform beauty, this standard that we're going to aim at every time. Because to aim at anything less than Jesus is to aim at something less than human. And I I don't know, I think we all want to be human here. (laughs) So we're going to aim at Jesus because he's the ultimate expression of who God is, but also what it means to be human. He's the full redemptive picture of what humanity can be. And I think Paul's just staring at Jesus on the cross, and it's his standard of beauty. And he's trying to, we're all trying to, none of us are perfect, but we're trying to work it out. So so even as we go through this, I don't know that, we, we, we talked about some of these things in the last series, but I would love for you to just be with the Spirit of God, reflecting, thinking, contemplating, what are the tools that I bring? What have I learned living in modern-day Babylon about, and I'm going to phrase it this way intentionally, how to win an argument, right? How do I win? And what does winning look like in Babylon? And maybe even beyond that, and especially in the, in the waters we're swimming in today, ooh, how do, I get, how do I get defensive when someone attacks me, right? So you think about yourself. We're probably all a little bit different, though, We have overlaps, and I'm sure we have a shared vision to a degree of what we've learned in Babylon about how to fight and win and defend ourselves. I want to give a little background of Paul's history with the church. It's going to come into clarity when we get to chapter 2 this morning, but I don't want to wait until we get to chapter 2 because I'm afraid it'll be a little confusing. 
But Paul planted the church, the book of Acts. Luke tells us Paul plants the church in Corinth. And there's a lot of correspondence going on. I'm not going to get into all of it. There's, we'll, we'll unpack more and more and more as we journey through the summer with this letter. But for the sake of this morning, what you need to know and what you will eventually see as we read is that in between the writing and sending of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul shows up in Corinth. But he shows up kind of unexpectedly. He had told them, and this is really important because throughout this letter, Paul is defending, and we'll get into this more at the end of the letter, but there are a few people who are really attacking Paul's character and his apostleship. And so throughout the letter, he's kind of defending himself, and I think in a beautiful cruciform way. But, but he doesn't follow the itinerary he had told them, and he shows up unexpectedly, and, it, and it's, it's horrible. It doesn't go well, and we are guessing to a degree. We don't really know. Well, you'll, we'll read it this morning, but, but, but the way I understand what's happening, and I think sometimes the simplest explanation is the best. He shows up, and somebody in the, in the community in Corinth, it would have been a church smaller than our gathering this morning, somebody kind of has a big fight with Paul in public in front of everybody. And I got, there's different ways that people kind of understand what, but, if, but, if, but as I'm understanding it this morning, just with humility, I think... It seems to me like there's this big public fight and the church is just quiet. <laughs> and Paul is kind of like, are you with me? I mean, do you understand? We, do we understand the same gospel here? Like what's going on? And Paul ends up leaving Corinth with great just concern about their relationship. And he doesn't come back in the way that he thought he would. It's referred to as the painful or sorrowful visit. What Paul is then going to do, and this is part of how he's going to lean into this the difficulty, that he, he's going to write a letter. He's not, and, and we'll talk about being ready for these conversations. He wasn't ready to go back to Corinth. And so he sends, he writes what is often referred to as the painful or sorrowful letter, and he sends it with Titus. And then a lot of what he's doing in chapters 1 through 7 is we're living in the world of Paul's tension of what it was like for him to wait to reconnect with Titus to find out what happened with this letter. So he already knows, but we're kind of drawn into his story as he's kind of telling us his concern for the church. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a picture of what's going on. There's tension, and, 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 and I mean, and this isn't even all the tension in Corinth. Like, there's more we'll get to as we go through the letter. But I want to pick up there, where we'll jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and it's kind of the beginning of the body of the letter. We did the introduction, the doxology, the blessing last week. We'll pick up in verse 12. Paul says this, and you can even hear he's, he's trying to, in many ways, like clear, clear the air. Like We can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all of our dealings. I mean, in many ways, he's defending his motivations and intentions. Like, look, we've been we're not, we're not being secretive or tricky or manipulative. We're not doing those things. We, we're, what we say is what we mean. We've depended on God's grace, not on our own human wisdom. And even this morning, I think I'll even refer back to our last series when we were talking about human wisdom or, or what drives Babylon. What it means to win, right, is in Babylon, you've got you've to find a way because we're all running for the same stuff and there's scarcity, when you live outside, the, there's no scarcity in the kingdom of God. There's abundance. 
But in Babylon, you're constantly, you're, that's part of your fear. It's part of the narrative. There's not enough. And so what, what are we trained to do? Whatever tools we pick up in Babylon, we hack everyone down around us to lift ourselves up. That's human wisdom. That's what Paul's talking about. And Paul's like, no, no, this is all God's thing. This is all grace. We're learning from Jesus that the way of this simple kingdom, this backwards kingdom, is that instead of putting others down to lift ourselves up, we follow Jesus into this role of servant. And we humble ourselves. We lower ourselves to lift others up. Because it's all God's grace. And that's what God did for us. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, again, in this upside down kingdom, that's, if you even want to use the language of winning or victory, there it is. That's what it is the kingdom coming in our midst. He says, that is how we have conducted ourselves before the world. And you know this. I mean, that's how we've always been around you. Our letters have been straightforward and there's nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. Again, there's a few outside voices we'll eventually get to that are trying to find things in Paul's letters that he never said, right? They're just challenging him. You read them. I mean, we, we, we said what we mean. And he says, I hope someday you will fully understand us, even if you don't understand us now, because Paul, what Paul is going to do throughout this is constantly be bringing our attention back to Jesus. When the, when the day the Lord Jesus returns, on that day, he says, you'll be proud of us and we'll be proud of you. It'll be a mutual boast. And sometimes that word boast, we can, it can sound like bragging. Boasting is really when you're talking about where you find your security and your confidence. And we got to be okay with that word because when we get to the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to boast in, I think, one of the most beautiful ways. I love the end of this letter. At the end of the summer, we'll get there. But if you boast in your own confidence, in your own security, in your own strength, in your own resources, well, that's bragging. Look what I did. (laughs) But what Paul's going to say is, look, if you boast in the grace of God and what Jesus has done for you, well, that's just being honest. You find your security, you find your confidence in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And, and then when the Lord returns and you, church, and me, as the apostle who planted the church, we, we're going to boast in each other. It's going to be a mutual boast. That's where I want to start this morning as you begin to think about your own sources of conflict. I think it's really important. As you think about, because most of the people you fight with are probably people you're really close to and you love. That's most of my fights are with the people I love the most. I mean, how does that work? I always wonder why. That's how it works. So I want to kind of reflect a little bit on Paul here. We're in this together. We're, this is a shared journey. And again, we're going to see Paul getting ready for the conversation. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to phrase it this way. I'm going to kind of steal some language from another author, but... But I want to say to you this way this morning, you'll know you're ready to have a difficult conversation that may lead into an argument. You know you're ready when you are ready to sit next to rather than across from someone. (laughs) When if you want to picture yourself at a table with the person this difficult, crucial conversation needs to happen with, no, you're going to, instead instead of putting the problem in the middle of the table or more likely pushing the problem to their side of the table... You walk around the table and you sit next to them and you say, okay, here's our problem. I want you to see it from my perspective. I need to see it from your perspective. How are we together going to get to where we want to be together? How are we going to do this? 
A lot of times, and I, cause I, I was talking to Kami about this this weekend. I mean, we had, a, we had a little fight on Friday night. We have a, I don't know what it is about 2023. I'm like, we fought almost, like half the Fridays we have an argument, a crucial conversation. Yeah, not the stuff that marital therapists would be proud of. We just, I think it's because we know each other so well and, and we're, like, we're safe with the, I mean, here's the honest truth. I do not think there is another living human being who is more for me than my wife. And it's not just an opinion, like it's borne out over almost 19 years of marriage. My wife is for me. But you know what's happened on Friday nights in 2023? <laughs> Something in the back of my mind says, that's my adversary. And everything's her fault. I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of funny, but aw- like awkward funny, like kind of ugly. Like maybe you don't want to know that about your pastor, but it's true. We have arguments and fights, but we do try to remind each other, wait for the Spirit of God to remind us of this cruciform beauty because because we really do have a shared vision of what our family could be. And we're trying to help each other get there. And we stumble along the way and we apologize and we're forgiving and we keep moving on. But that's the first thing. I don't think Paul's like, look, church is your fault. No, we're in this together and when Jesus comes, I'm going to be so proud of you. And you're going to be proud of me. Because we're, what we're excited about is what Jesus is doing. That's what, that's what Paul's doing. We'll get into a little bit more of the specifics here. Verse 15. Since I was so sure of your understanding and trust, I wanted to give you a double blessing by visiting you twice. He's starting to get into some of what didn't happen first on my way to Macedonia. And again, when I returned from Macedonia, you could send me on my way to Judea. And you can, I mean, again, if we had more time, he's either maybe talking about double blessing of like, we get to be together twice. I actually think knowing Paul, what he's saying is you'll be able to send me twice. You'll be ascending church twice. What a blessing to send someone out to do gospel work. I think that's what he's saying. Verse 17, now again, you're getting into some of the content. You may be asking why I changed my plan. There's definitely a few little birdies in the church in Corinth just chirping away. Look at Paul. He never does what he says. Man, he's like a politician. Just His yes is no, and his no is yes. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. I, I just can't trust this guy. So maybe questions like this, Paul says, do you think I make my plans carelessly? Is that what you, I mean, you think I'm careless? Do you think I'm like, here you go, people of the world who say yes when they really mean no? I mean, Paul's like, haven't you ever had problems? I mean, stuff happens when you're traveling and there's no telephone, there's no email. I mean, how's he going to let him know in the first century that something happened and he couldn't get there? Like, why are you attacking me for this? One of the authors I was reading. He's a professor. And he said this, one of my students once arrived very late for a tutorial. And I was working on an extremely tight schedule and I wasn't amused at having the day disrupted. I thought the student needed to know how far out of line his behavior was. I had just finished my little moral lecture and we were beginning the tutorial when the telephone rang. It was a publisher wondering why I had not sent the writing I should have finished the previous month. I heard myself making the same kind of excuses the student had made to me a moment earlier. (laughs) I put the phone down. We looked at each other. 
And he said with the hint of a smile, I feel a bit better now. <laughs> it just happens. Paul's like, this stuff happens. Why do, I have, why do I have to defend myself? But he's being attacked and challenged. Now, here's one of these little tangents. Again, believe me, I would love to do a whole sermon on this. <laughs> I mean, just listen to what Paul's going to... He's talking about this yes and no, and is he wishy-washy, talking out of both sides of his mouth. And he just can't help but launch into Jesus. Verse 18, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you does not waver between yes and no. Because of Jesus. For Jesus, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no. He is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you. And as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. As God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. And if you're looking for... I'll even give you a half of a verse to memorize this week. Memorize the first part of verse 20. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And honestly, if you're newer to church or newer to Crossview, I'm going to tell you this is basically what discipleship is. Learning how true that is. And living in light of that reality. Every promise that God has made is a yes, an amen in Jesus. And as you go forward and live in light of that reality, dare to live as if that were true, you will find the hope and that peace and that deep rest for your soul and great purpose that gets you up in the morning. And you will know what it means to be loved and seen. I mean, all of those. Or yes and amen in Jesus. And through Christ, our amen, which is basically really what amen means in Hebrew. Yes, indeed. Our amen, then, our yes in Christ ascends to God in glory. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us. Again, another, we could do a whole sermon on this right here, too. He's identified us as his own. God is kind. He's run after you. He's, you and I are the lost sheep, and he left the 99 to find us. And he's identified us as his own. And he's given us, I mean, in case you're wondering, are you really there, God? How do I know? Well, he's given you and I the Holy Spirit, the very personal, empowering presence of God that bears the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This way of Jesus, this life of Jesus, this personality of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us into our hearts because it's the first installment. And if you have the Spirit, then you know that you know that you know that God guarantees everything he has promised what Paul says. And he, he's, Paul has seen the Spirit of God at work in Corinth. He's not worried about that. That's, this is a troubling time, and it's a difficult conversation to have, and there's a lot of tension in the relationship. But Paul, he really does believe that the church is going to figure this out. It's going to be hard. There's going to be some tears. I mean, every real relationship that you and I have that has any depth to it involves tears whether metaphorical or literal. It just ha- we, we are sinful people and we hurt each other. But if we're going to love to the depths that God loves us, it's just going to happen. And we're going to have to learn patience and endure through the tears. 
Because the backside of all of this, the reconciliation, the forgiveness, the experience of mercy, there's nothing like it. And it draws us even closer, even closer. Verse 23, now I call upon God as my witness that I am telling the truth. Now again, we're going to talk, he he wasn't ready. The reason I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. And I do, I I mean, just sitting with this a little bit more this week, I think there's a, Paul's sparing them, and there's so, this is such a personal letter of Paul's pastoral apostleship, and as a pastor, there's so much that I relate to with Paul. And I think there's even a piece of, I'm sparing you and I'm sparing me, I just wasn't ready. Man, it was such a painful visit when I showed up unexpectedly, and it ended so poorly, and I just, I couldn't come back, both for you and for me, it just wasn't time, so I... I just felt like the wisdom of the Spirit of God was to write this letter, to write this letter, to, to, to communicate, but without all the tension that we were feeling when we were together. And again, he can't resist himself. And so he's going to remind them and maybe even remind himself, look, I did this to spare you, but it's not because I'm, let me just say it this way, Babylonian, trying to dominate you. Verse 24, that does not mean we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. Because that's not how the, that's how Babylon works. That's not how the kingdom works. What do we want to do? We want to work together with you so you will be full of joy. For it is by your own faith that you stand firm. I, I don't, I don't control you. The spirit of God is alive in and actually, the, this, this word dominate, the other place it shows up in the New Testament, which I, so I think this is clearly on Paul's mind. If you're familiar with the Gospels, and if you're not, <laughs> the greatest thing I can encourage you to do is to get familiar with the Gospels, get to know them. And you might remember a story where James and John ask to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus when his kingdom comes, imagining that they will have all kinds of authority and power and recognition and fame and glory, <laughs> And Jesus says, oh, you don't know what you're asking because my kingdom comes through a cross and my kingdom comes through suffering. You don't know what you're asking. And then he goes on to say, look, we're not like the Gentiles or coming out of our last series, we're not like Babylon. We're not like the Babylonians. We don't lord it over others. We don't win by dominating. No, we serve. Jesus says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. I think that's just echoing, echoing in Paul's mind. So let's talk a little bit about this. What does it look like then in relationships, difficult conversations, to, to have this mentality that, that my posture is one of a servant? And that even Paul, the great apostle who planted the church, so I'm not, I'm not going to dominate you. I'm not going to lord it over you. Let me say it this way. You'll know you're ready to have a difficult conversation when you can hold the other person accountable, because that is important. Sometimes we need to hold each other accountable. Sometimes we do need to be called to the carpet. If you think that you don't have any blind spots, you're just fooling yourself and you're drinking the Kool-Aid of Babylon is what you're doing. Yeah, just do whatever you want. Have you heard that? Just do whatever feels good. Man, sometimes you need a loving, gentle, kind, but strong brother or sister in Christ to say, look, that Kool-Aid is spoiled. It's toxic. 
You're just corrupting your whole digestive system. Like, stop drinking it. So you know you're ready to have a conversation when you are ready to hold somebody accountable, I'll say it this way, without using the tools of Babylon. You don't need shame or fear or blame to control and manipulate and dominate the other person. Now, this is something we're all, I'm still very much learning this. I was schooled in the art of wielding shame. (laughs) And I've shared a few times how often I try to do that in my marriage and as a dad. And I usually gratefully have the Holy Spirit, Jeff, you you don't like that. Why are you doing that? There are ways, and maybe, you only, maybe, you, maybe you've never experienced it, and maybe we can learn this together as a church family. Maybe your home or your family of origin, you, just never, you never experienced anything like this. And you don't, but let me give you an imagination now of a more beautiful way that says maybe, just maybe, there's a way to hold each other accountable, and it's saturated with love. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a way that others can hold you accountable, and you can hold them, that isn't just tarnished with shame and blame and fear and manipulation. Maybe, maybe we can learn this. I think there is a way. I think Paul's trying to do that here. I'm your servant. I don't dominate you. I don't control you. I trust you. Spirit of God's at work in you. It's guaranteed. Or let me say it this way to go a step further, because sometimes I think we need to spell this out. You're ready to have a difficult conversation with someone when you can model the vulnerability and openness that you expect to see from them, right? Because most of the time, if you and I are the ones who are going to initiate this conversation, this crucial, difficult, complicated conversation, most of the time we have something we want to say. And I'll just tell you, if we want to say something, but we have a posture of defensiveness and unwillingness to listen, why would you expect someone else to have a different posture? Part, I think part of being a servant is being willing to even submit to someone else. And even if the other person seems to be the major cause of the issue, you at least have the humility to say, well, what's my part? Again, get up, walk around the table, and sit next to the person to try to gain their perspective. Remind yourself that in most of your arguments, the person you're arguing with is for you. Now, I know that's not always the case. I mean, we live in a broken world. We don't always have reconciliation. But if you're like me, the vast percentage, the majority of my arguments are with people who are actually for me. We've just both forgotten it in the moment. So what does that look like? To not try to dominate, control, win Babylonian style, but to be a servant. To be a part of this upside down, backwards kingdom that Paul is compelled by. The beauty of the cruciform, this other way of giving your life away in order to find your life in Jesus. All right, well, we'll go. I know we're covering quite a bit of ground, but we'll keep moving forward. You're going to start to see some of the specifics I was telling you about earlier as we get into chapter 2. Paul's going to describe this painful visit. He says, So I decided that I would not bring you grief with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief, it's going to get a little wordy. I don't think he's trying to be that crazy, but it kind of, like, what's he saying? If I cause you grief, who will make me glad? Certainly not someone I have grieved. That is why I wrote to you as I did, so that when I do come, I won't be grieved by the very ones who ought to give me the greatest joy. Surely you all know that my joy comes from your being joyful. In other words, co-workers in joy. (laughs) And he says, I wrote that letter in great anguish. 
I mean, this was, a, this was a complicated, difficult, crucial conversation. And I, myself, had a troubled heart and many tears. And I honestly didn't want, and this is where you have to choose. Are you going to trust Paul or not? I trust Paul. I believe him. I believe that he says what I mean. I, I, I didn't want to grieve you, but I, I wanted to let you know how much love I have for you. I was motivated by love and by this thing that God is doing in the church. And he's saying, look, I know if I came back, I would have brought sorrow. It would have created sorrow. There wouldn't have been any joy. So I thought I'll write this letter and we can air it and we can discuss it. You can discuss it. And then I will come back. And hopefully when I come back, there will be joy. That's what Paul was thinking. That's, That's the way he went forward with this particular instance. I'm not saying, again, it's not a formula. It's just what Paul did, but he's waiting. He's waiting for Titus. Now we'll find out later chapter 7, Titus returns, and and the Corinthians actually did respond well. Maybe too well, actually. So picking up in verse 5, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Again, this is why, as you try to get into this, it seems like there was some kind of confrontation in front of the church, and Paul was really the one attacked, but Paul's like, but it actually hurt you more than it hurt me. I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. And he's like, I found out from Titus that most of you opposed him, and that was probably punishment enough. You disciplined him, but we don't discipline with the end goal of just being disciplinarians. No, now it's come time to forgive and comfort. Our goal is reconciliation. And maybe, maybe our primary tool in doing gospel work is forgiveness. In other words, and I was was actually thinking about this a lot this morning. When you think about the tools that you use, however you envision your tool of forgiveness, I'm just saying as followers of Jesus who are brought into this life because of his forgiveness, our forgiveness tool should be the most worn and torn tool we have. I wanted to say it should be the dullest tool we had because we use it so much, but I'm like, that might send the wrong message. But wow, if we do anything over and over again is forgive. Forgive ourselves, forgive others, respond to the glorious craziness that God would forgive us of our sins. (laughs) But then how could we not? This is part of Paul's thing. How could we not forgive this man? I've forgiven him. I mean, let's keep reading. I wrote you. So yeah, well, otherwise he may become overcome by discouragement. He says, so I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. Welcome him back. I wrote you as I did to test you to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. So again, this is Paul. I know you'll forgive him. The spirit of God's in you. It's guaranteed that God's working out all his promises. I have great confidence that God is doing a new thing in you. When you forgive this man, just know that I forgive him too. Even though I was the one who was challenged in front of all of you and you stayed silent and it really sent me into a tailspin and I had all kinds of tension. I've forgiven him. I forgive. We're we're fine. We're good. And again, even kind of to reinforce what he was saying, when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. There's only one Lord in this kingdom and his name's Jesus. (laughs) Everything's by his authority. And we do this so that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his evil schemes. We've talked about that a little bit. I'll kind of end with that idea. But as we, as we think about Satan's evil schemes when it comes to these 
kinds of relational tense moments that we all have, maybe on a weekly basis. I just, I mean, I don't know if you've been thinking about it, but I, I, I wrote a few things down. I think for some of us, this is, if you know me, this is me. <laughs> We're so conflict avoidant. Being conflict avoidant is not necessarily always being loving, folks. That's a lesson that I am learning again and again and again. But sometimes in modern day Babylon, we think we've won because we never had to have the conversation. It's not winning. It's not love. Love is always a calibration of grace and truth. And if you and I refuse to be honest with one another, to hold each other accountable. Now, with gentleness and kindness and patience, love is only love when grace and truth are present. But you don't win just because you didn't have the conversation. Now, sometimes maybe, that's why there's no formula. Sometimes some of you want to have a fight just to have a fight. Now, that's not loving either. That's just you being unaware of your own emotions and being controlled by them. That's why there's no formula. The Spirit of God is in us, but Sometimes we think winning is never having the conversation. Sometimes we think winning is dominating the other person. You should have heard the way I let them have it. Oh, man, they were bawling when they left the room. Yeah. That's not a yeah in the kingdom, folks. Now, if those are tears of repentance, sure. But if those are tears because you were just so fluid in your argument and you dominated them, well, maybe you need some tears too because I'm not so sure that's winning and I also think part of what Paul's dealing with here in 2 Corinthians he, chapter 2 is sometimes we think winning, and certainly you tell me if this is modern-day Babylon or not, winning is staying fractured. Paul, this guy challenged you, so now we know who among us is us and who among us is really them. He's a them. And Paul says, no, 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 not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there's no more us in them. That's Babylonian. Get rid of that language. This man needs to be forgiven and brought home. Reconcile. We're a family. We've all been saved. <laughs> and I'll, I'll close. I was thinking about this. We're going to baptize two of our, if you were with us last week, we had a, an older crowd, if you will, get baptized. We got a younger crowd this week. But I was reminiscing back to VBS. My favorite day of teaching was Zacchaeus. I had him in the room down the hall. Nolan and I were taking turns and they came in, all the kids, and I, I was like, I'm Zacchaeus. I'm telling them the story of Zacchaeus, this tax collector. And I'm like, I need your money. 20 bucks, everybody. Sure enough, one kid had 20 bucks. I was like, no, no, keep your money. Just don't really want your money. But most of the kids had no money. I was like, well, I need something. I need your right shoe. Everybody right shoe. No, you get it. Yes, I need your right shoe. They were having so much fun. They gave me the right shoe. So then we talk about Zacchaeus and who he was and what he did and then his meeting with Jesus and how Jesus changed him. And, G and Zacchaeus, he, he stole from people, but he became generous and he gave back even more than he stole. And I said, well, I guess I got to give you your shoes back. Yeah, we get our shoes back. You're awesome. Thanks, Pastor Jeff, right? <laughs> but then we talked about how the people around, because this is a backward, upside down crazy kingdom. The people around who saw Jesus hanging out with Zacchaeus, who's one of them, a Roman conspirator taking advantage of us. They didn't like it. It just reinforced their us versus them. And so we did this. I thought it was a cute little exercise. It was in the VBS curriculum, but I had fun with it. I had the kids decide, are you more a cat person or a dog person? And so we go to opposite sides of the room and I'm like, okay, tell me why a dog's a better pet. 
Tell me why cats are yelling at each other across the room. And I said, all right, here's what we're going to do. If you think your pet is adorable when it's a baby, if it's a puppy or a kitten, take a step towards each other. And if you think your pet is soft and cuddly, and if you like to play with your pet, take a step towards, why don't we focus in on what we have in common instead of what separates us? And in the middle, we're, well, this is fun. The kids are in the middle and they're like high-fiving and they love me. And it's more fun to be together than on opposite sides of the room. And church, here's the thing. We have all kinds of differences and things we need to work through and conversations we need to have, but we all have Jesus. And that unites us in a way that nothing else will. So don't forget that. We're going to have to revisit that again, especially when we get into 2024 and another election season. We, Crossview, we will pray to not be divided over these things. And we are going to have all kinds of voices saying, no, you're a cat person, you're a dog person. No, 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 no. No, we, we are lamb people, right? We follow a little lamb who saves us from our sins. Amen? All right, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, that's, who, that's what we want to be. We want to be people who are so captivated by your gospel, by the beauty of you on the cross, that even in Friday night exhausted conversations, in the hiddenness of our own homes, we, we still try to pursue you. We fail and we try again. We repent, we confess, we experience forgiveness, and we watch you, Jesus, we watch you take ugly. Because a lot of these conversations are ugly and they turn ugly fast. We're so good at being Babylonian. But Jesus, one of the things we learn is that the cross is so ugly. You've made it beautiful. That you can take some of these difficult relationships that we have and these difficult conversations that we walk through and you can make them beautiful. And you can make us beautiful. Jesus, make us beautiful. That's our prayer. Make us beautiful. In your name we pray, amen.